I welcome you to another week of our four-and-a-half-year verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word, and also welcome you to a new year, since this is broadcasting on the 1st of January, 2024. All this week, as we begin the session, I want to just spend a few moments telling you who I'm thankful for in promoting this work that uh, we're engaged in of going through all of God's inspired word verse by verse. And today, I want to start out with the one that means the most to me personally, and that would be my wife, Deborah. She and I have known each other since we were 13 years of age, so that was 50 years ago now. Uh, We've been married 45 years And she has been my biggest ministry supporter. In fact, if it were not for her working to pay the bills, I would not have been able to get through college. I would not have been able to get through graduate school. And I would not have been able to take several of the ministry positions that I took where my salary was just not going to cut it by itself. And so we've been very blessed by her career, and I want to say thank you to her for that and encourage you you also to uh, thank God for her. And if you happen to know her, uh, let her know you appreciate all that she's done to make sure that this work is going out uh, each and every time it does. She is my Proverbs 31 lady, and... uh, She needs to be praised. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 4. We are looking at this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to the people in northern and western modern-day Turkey, probably toward the end of 60 Three. And the reason I go with that, that time frame is because I think that Peter had probably been ministering in this general vicinity of Asia Minor until Paul had been released and then, I believe, headed out uh, toward, uh, toward Rome. And that That was his plans. He was not going to go back to Rome anymore. He'd been there for a couple of years. So I think that Peter probably felt that there ought to be an apostle there in the capital city of the empire. And so I think he probably headed there right around uh, the end of 63. And I believe he wrote this letter back to the previous area of ministry shortly after he arrived. Now that, that timing will become important as we move into the history uh, that records his death uh, at Rome uh, during the very first official Roman persecution of Christianity, which took place under Roman uh, Emperor Nero. Uh, More on that later. But Peter's goal as he's writing this is clearly to reinforce the apostolic teaching for the church all over. Uh, I've told you repeatedly, 
it seems as if he's been reading through collected works of the Apostle Paul already, and much of what he is writing is reinforcing that teaching. And the Holy Spirit is clearly involved in all of this. These people needed reminding, live the right way, live the holy way, live the Christ-like way, don't give in to the old man, don't give in to the old woman, don't give in to the old self, don't fall back into sin, uh, follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, and don't get down just because of persecution, because your eyes ought to be on the prize of eternity, not the here and now. And so with that background, uh, we just finished with Peter talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and he writes this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, one of the things I've mentioned uh, as well uh, in the introduction to this letter, is that in the 60s and the 70s, moving on toward the close of the first century, uh, this false teaching known to us today as Gnosticism became a problem. And Gnosticism was basically jumping off this philosophy that all flesh is bad and spirit is good. And, uh, and it taught when it came into uh, contact with Christianity, it taught that Jesus never was flesh, that he was a phantom, that he came as a spirit being projecting himself into our world to help us understand we have to divorce ourselves from the flesh that is evil. And of course, that's nonsense. That's definitely not what the scripture teaches in any shape or form. But Peter, and then later John the Apostle, make it crystal clear. Jesus was in a physical body. They touched him. They ate with him. They drank with him. They traveled with him. They experienced him in the flesh. And when Jesus was persecuted and then abused, and then crucified. All of that happened in the flesh. So Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the idea was here, if you have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer you who is living, but rather it is Christ living in you. If you haven't figured it out, I'm giving you a, a rendition of Galatians 2.20 here. The life that you now live, you must live for the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. And so we need to adopt that humble attitude of Jesus. I've got to do what is needful. 
regardless of what other people might do to me, against me. Because it is always the right thing to do things God's way. And God's way is not sin. Uh, later, John the Apostle will write in his first epistle, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. So that was the goal, always, of Christianity. But when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who is the propitiation, which is a very fancy word for place where the sin is removed. For Jesus Christ is our propitiation for our sins, and not just for our sins, but for the sins of anyone and everyone in the world that will just repent and embrace him. So here is Peter kind of upholding that whole standard. You know that Jesus came here to planet Earth to become the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He who knew no sin became the sin offering our, our behalf, and that is why we need to now be his righteousness in this world. Peter says, Jesus never sinned. And those of you that did sin, now that you've embraced Jesus, you should be done with that. You should be leaving that behind. Verse 2 goes on. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the Galatians 2.20 again. The life I now live in this body, in this piece of flesh, as weak as it is, I'm now living for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we're not living to let our bodies run roughshod over our Christianity. We, like the Apostle Paul, we pound on our bodies. You know, we're talking metaphorically here. We put them through the paces. We train them. We exercise them to make them behave themselves and know, no, I am not going to do whatever my body wants to do. I will only do that which God intended for my body to do. I love the way that Peter expresses himself on this topic. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He says, you've already had plenty of time to do the sin garbage, and you did a bunch of it, just like the Gentiles. Remember, he's writing as a Jewish person. He grew up using the word Gentile as a synonym for sinner, and uh, many of the people he's writing to probably have a, a similar Jewish background, so he goes ahead and uses it. He says, you've had more than enough time to be like the sinful Gentiles out there. What do they do? What have they been engaging in? Well, here's a nice little list. Living in sensuality, so it's all about what their bodies want to do. Passions, you know, whatever uh, they're moved uh, by the circumstances and their desires to do. Drunkenness, you know, losing control through 
mind-altering substances like alcoholic beverages. Orgies, you know, sleeping around. That's, that's basically what it says here. Drinking parties. You know, how, how many uh, people have been involved in those pub crawls or those big raves where they, they just intend to lose control? That's the whole idea. No. There's been too much time already devoted to that sinful sort of stuff. And lawless idolatry. Now, that was a really big deal in the first century when there are tons and tons of idols all through the Roman Empire that people were worshiping. We have some of that still to this day, but the bigger thing is we have all sorts of other things that are the idols of our life that we worship, that we throw all of our attention to. He says, you've had more than enough time to devote your past life to that sort of stuff, that sort of junk. Verse 4, with respect to this, they, meaning your, your old friends from that world, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Debauchery is just, a, again, one of our little fancy words that has the idea of going wild doing whatever you feel like. And so they malign you. And some of you know exactly what he's talking about here. You get cut off by some of your former friends when they find out that you're no longer interested as a Christian uh, in getting drunk on the weekends or sleeping around uh, with, you know, whoever it is that they want to hook you up with, that you're no longer interested in engaging in inappropriate behavior from a biblical standpoint. And so once they figured that out, they're like, hey, what happened to you? You're no fun anymore. You got religion, huh? And they cut you off. They're not interested in maintaining a relationship. Basically, they were wild weather friends. You know, as long as you wanted to be wild with them, they were friends, but no more. Uh, now, that doesn't always happen. We know this. Sometimes when you give your testimony in a situation like that, a few of them realize that they were in the same boat and they weren't happy about it. You know, they were putting on the the false face of happiness, when in fact, no matter how much they drank, no matter how much they slept, slept around, no matter how much they gave in to the, the, the wildness of life, it didn't fix what was going on inside of them. And so when they hear that you have found a fix, they want to hear that. And so I'm, I'm thankful for those sorts of situations. But Peter is more focused on the ones that cut you off. They're done with you. Verse 5, though, says this, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The reality is, it, it doesn't matter if they cut you off as a former friend because you've now become a Christian. 
they will still give an account to God for their activities, their choices uh, to do these things. And the more they know, the more accountable they will be. Uh, And so this is one of the reasons why Christians are engaged in sharing the gospel. Uh, First through their examples, through their lifestyle, but also when the opportunity presents itself in an explanation of what the gospel is all about. And it's not a fancy sort of thing. Remember, Paul made a big deal of the fact that he, he didn't come preaching this convoluted philosophy with all these fancy terms and highfalutin nonsense. He preached Christ crucified and resurrected. And that's really all we need to do, too. We can give our own testimony. I was a sinner, meaning I screwed my life up from what God had intended me to have. He had given life to me as a gift, and I chose to use it in a selfish fashion which did harm not just to me, but to other people around me. But Jesus came and died in my place instead of me having to pay that penalty. And he offered me salvation, and I embraced it. And it's not just for me, it's for anyone in that same boat. See, it's that simple. If you've been saved, then you should be able to explain to someone how to be saved. You've been through the process, so you should be able to walk somebody else through it. Now, along this line, he returns to something he'd talked about earlier, and that is the the people who died in the flood. Verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, the guys that are dead now. Uh, Because back in the days of Noah, the Holy Spirit was working through Noah to proclaim the gospel to them. And that gospel was very simple. God is going to destroy this world with water because of its sin. If you want to be saved from that destruction, repent and get on the ark. That was the gospel of that day. And because only eight people responded, only eight people were carried safely into the new world through the waters of the flood. Remember, that was the whole thing about immersion uh, represents that same sort of salvation in the Christian era. Well, here's Peter returning to that saying, this is why the gospel got preached back then, that though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, what he means is, If they had responded positively to the gospel, they could have been saved. They didn't, and so they were lost. But this is the sort of opportunity that God wants to present to everyone. And uh, I like to present it in this fashion. Before you can embrace the good news, you have to hear the bad news. You know, some of you 
have been touched by a horrible disease like cancer. Maybe it was you personally that contracted it, or maybe it was somebody in your family. But the first thing that happened was you heard the bad news. You have cancer. It's going to kill you. That's almost always the next part of this bad news. And then comes the hope. But if you let me, we will do this treatment, we will do this procedure, and I think we can beat it. See, that's your doctor's good news, right? But you had to hear the bad news first. Because the reality is, if you hear the bad news and say, I don't believe it, that's definitely not going to be good. You have to respond positively to that bad news by embracing the good news of salvation. So this is why the gospel isn't preached in each and every generation in some form or fashion. Because people need to know you've got a problem. Here is God's fix. Because God really doesn't want to bring anyone to eternal judgment. It does not bring a smile to God's face to think about sending anyone out of his eternal presence. God, this is New Testament, God would not have anyone to have to perish, but rather that they might repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God really wants. But it's up to us as to whether or not that happens. Each one of us as individuals have to make the choice. And so that's what Peter uh, was bringing up again about the people back in the flood time. Now, since he's already been talking about the past judgment in the flood, it's very natural for him to slide into the judgment that's coming this next time around. So verse number 7 of chapter 4, he says, The end of all things is at hand. So it's next on the agenda. Uh, now, Peter will end up eventually having to explain you can't think of things on the time scale of human beings. This is God's time scale. So when we talk about the end is near, well, it's been near since the day that Peter wrote. Actually, it's been near ever since God sent John the Immerser and Jesus the Christ to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the end of all things is at hand. It is close by. In fact, it is very close for every individual because the end of our own life is always close. We don't even know if we get the next breath, do we? So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, now, we have to pay attention this is what we're expected to do. Be self-controlled. One of the fruits of the Spirit, right? We need to get a handle on our lifestyle through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, when we talk about sober-minded, uh, it brings up uh, the image of somebody that's been drinking too much, right? Right? 
or they're stoned out of their gourd, and they don't make sense, and they're stumbling around, and later they won't even remember some of the things that they were doing. The opposite of that is being in control, being sober-minded, having your head on straight. That's what we need to do when we know that things are heading toward ultimate judgment. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We know that prayers are not to be frivolously approached. They have to be thoughtful. We need to think about what we're talking to God about. It's important. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The agape love, which is what's being talked about here, is the love of God. It's a commitment love. It's a love that looks out for the other person's benefit, regardless of what it might count, what it might cost self. So that's why Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. So we need to love the people around us exactly like that. Not just the people in the church, the people outside the church. We need to love them enough that we want to cover up their sin with the gospel in their life. Even our enemy needs to be loved by us in that fashion Jesus teaches us. Verse number nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality in this language literally is a love of a stranger, and it's the commitment love word for a stranger. Or excuse me, it's the, the friendship love uh, for a stranger. We need to care about people that we don't yet know. We need to be thoughtful and, and hospitable and considerate of everyone around us. And we need to do it without grumping about it. Uh, one of the worst things that Christians can throw up as a bad example is to grump about doing the right thing. It's just craziness. You know, uh, you, you can imagine an immature child being told by a parent, I want you to do this. And the child says, I'll do it, but I won't like it. What are you doing? <laughs> That's not appropriate Christian thinking and uh, mindset and example. So Peter says, you go out there and you show the hospitality of Jesus Christ toward the people you don't even know yet. And you do that without grumping about it, without complaining that this is expected of you. Because you're supposed to be representing the love of God for those folks. Have a great rest of the day. See you next session.